If you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love and with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised, him, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In this passage, we're going to be looking at the outworking of God's grace. Throughout the church age, the subject of God's sovereign grace and man's responsibility and man's will has been the subject of much debate and division and conflict and criticism and all kinds of things. And so many different interpretations and understandings of, of how that works out, and we're going to try to give some understanding of that this morning. I was raised up in a Bible-believing church. As I got older and had gone on and began to teach, I realized that the Bible-believing church I was raised in was a Bible-believing church that believed in the portions of the Bible they agreed with. And the portions they didn't agree with, they ignored. The words predestination, election, were never mentioned except to, to state that we didn't agree with that. So I grew up in that kind of church. After Kay and I got married, we, uh, we joined a Southern Baptist church in a small rural town in West Tennessee, Savannah. And soon after I had joined, they asked me to teach. I think they didn't have anyone else that would, so they asked me to. Not that I was prepared. The first um, Sunday school class that I was assigned to was a class of men all of which were older than I, which was very intimidating, especially for someone that hadn't taught much. And I was the first, I remember the first classroom I came into, we were starting a study in the book of Ephesians. And I sat down and I turned to chapter 1 and I began to read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will. Right there a man stopped me. He interrupted me. He said, we're not going there. I was kind of taken back. I said, what do you, what do you mean? I'm just reading scripture. He said, I don't care what you're reading. We have free will and we're not going down that road of predestination. I was shocked and realized at that moment that I needed to study the scriptures and find out what God said because I knew that it wasn't right for man to make a determination on his own without 
agreeing to listen to Scripture. So I began a study of the Word of God. As we get into this passage and to understand what is being given to us in Ephesians chapter 2, we first must remember that Ephesians chapter 1 comes before Ephesians chapter 2. And so kind of we need to set some context before we get to chapter 2. And even before that, I think we need, to we need to come to an understanding of the proper view of God. The last few weeks, Chris has been talking about the Trinity, about the doctrine of the Trinity. And the God that we worship and the God of the Bible is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the God of creation. It is the only one and true God who is manifested in three persons that we know as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three equally eternal, equally in essence, equal in nature and attributes. All three are God, the one God that is manifested in three persons. As you go through the Bible, every person that you read about that had a true and a believing encounter with God was changed after that encounter. I'll give you a couple examples in the Old Testament. One, the first one is, uh, is in Job. When we look at the, the life of Job, if you remember the story of Job, Job was a righteous man, and he was living his life, worshiping God, being faithful to his children and all that. And Satan came before God and said, he only does what he does because you bless him so much. And God allowed Satan to take away everything that Job had. And for the first 37 chapters of the book of Job, you have Job's so-called friends and Job coming to grips with what was going on in Job's life. Job was maintaining that he was innocent, that he was righteous. and His, his buddies were maintaining that he was, sinner, he was a sinner, that God was judging him. And so you have all these chapters that are, that are this discourse between Job and his friends about what they have discerned and know about God. Finally, God says to Job, he says, Gird the minds of your loins. Who are you? Where were you when I created the world? Who are you to make judgments about me? So Job responds finally in repentance and faith on his knees. He says in verse 1 of 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Job came to realize that God is sovereign and doesn't have to answer to man. The other, the other example was uh, in Daniel was Neb is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, the first of the four Gentile kingdoms that God raised up to judge Israel and to rule over Jerusalem. And God gave Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, majesty, dominion, power. He was unmatched in his day. And he looked out upon his kingdom and said, look what I've done. He was prideful, not realizing, not acknowledging that God gave him that and God put him there. So God struck him down. God took away his mind. He became insane. And then God restored him and brought him to an understanding of who God was. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, he said, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. 
But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? So in Ephesians, when we begin to look at this passage, in the first chapter there, as as, as God has outlined all that he has accomplished to bring us to salvation, he gets down to verse 11, and he says, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. God has absolute free will. Which means, like it says in Psalms, that God does what he pleases. But what he pleases is in line with his nature. His nature is perfect and right and holy and just. God can do nothing outside of his nature. That's why God cannot sin, because it's contrary to his nature. But God can do everything that he desires to do. In this context, the first thing we see about God is that God is sovereign, and we are not. Many that hold to a, I have free will, are you saying that your will, that God is subordinate to your will? That God is subjected to your will, and you're not to God? Have you placed yourself above God? What is that? The second thing we know about what God has said is in verse 3, he says again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's a truth. In 1 Peter, verse 1, when Peter is talking about those that are scattered, those that are, that are in Asia, uh, Cappadocia, Galatia, he says, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. So you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, which is before the creation, it's before the fall of Adam, Before Adam fell, you were already chosen. So Adam's fall does not thwart the purpose of God because God has purposed to save those whom he chose. And the reason that it's not thwarted is because God has ordained, preordained, in 1 Peter 1, the Lamb of God was foreordained to come and die for the sins of men. So God has chosen. In chapter 8 of Romans, he, he makes it clear what the foreknowledge means and how do we understand that. It's because he says in verse 28, he says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God's purpose is that he chose before the foundation of the world to enter into a loving relationship with individuals. That's what it means when it says, For whom he foreknew. The word foreknew there means that he entered into a loving relationship. The word knew there, it has two words there that make up the word foreknow. The word for means beforehand. The word knew is the same word that it says in Genesis 1 when Adam knew his wife. It doesn't mean he knew who she was. It doesn't mean he knew where she was going. He knew her intimately. They become one flesh. They became united together in a loving relationship. That's the same word here. 
It, it's the same word that God uses when he says he foreknew that Jesus Christ would die on the cross. He foreordained it. God knows, not because he knows the future. God knows because he ordains the future. For God foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That means that everyone that God foreknew, he has predestined that they would become conformed to the image of his son. Now, God's choosing and God's election is different from predestination. God's choosing is God's purpose. Out of his will, he purposed to enter into a loving relationship with individuals. And then he predestined that those individuals would be conformed to the image of his son. So predestination is carried out in time. Election is before the foundation of time. In, in Ephesians passage, it says we are predestined to the adoption of sons. Here it says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's the same thing. Look in Romans 8, 23. Not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. At the time of the resurrection, at the time of the resurrection, at the time of the rapture, at the time of the transformation, everyone that is chosen of God will be receiving a glorified body, and so we will be in the image of the glorified Son. Jesus is a resurrected man, a resurrected from the grave. He has a body, a spiritual body. And just like we bore the image of the natural man, the natural body, we will bear the image of the spiritual man, the spiritual body. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of the resurrected, glorified Christ. So we will have a glorified body. And so he says, all those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to that image. And all those whom he predestined, he called. That word called there is implying that he's called you into that union with Christ. It's not a general call that says, oh, anybody that can come. It's a call that means you have been brought into a union with, he's called you into union with Christ. And we'll talk about what that means. But everyone he's called into union with Christ, he justifies. That means he gives you a righteous standing before God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to you, and you have now the righteousness of Jesus Christ as your standing, not your own. And all those whom he justified, he glorified. That means what God's purpose cannot be thwarted, it will bring to glory all those whom he purposed to save. So he has brought them to that point. So we are, we are conformed to that image. The, second, the third thing about this truth is everyone that God foreknew will come to glory. Everyone that God foreknew will be saved. He makes that clear in this passage. All those whom he foreknew, he predestined. All those he predestined, he called. All those he called, he justified. All those he justified, he glorified. That's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 6 when he is talking about him being the bread of life that comes down from heaven. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe, speaking to the Jews. In verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise it up on the last day. Before the foundation of the world, 
God chose to enter into a loving relationship with individuals. And he gave those individuals as a love gift to the son. And the son agreed to go and die for those that God gave him. And he came to the cross to die for those who was chosen before the foundation of the world. And when he died for those, we are united with him in his likeness in Romans chapter 6, in his death. And then we will be also united with him in his likeness in his resurrection. All those that were given to the son by the father will come to him and he will lose none. And then he takes the the reverse side of that in, chapter, in verse 65 of John 6. And he says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. So if the, God, if the Father didn't choose you before the foundation world, you cannot come to Christ. So this is the truth that we have when we go to, Genesis, to Ephesians chapter 2 is that first of all, God is sovereign, which means that God is sovereign over every aspect of everything, including your salvation. And then the second thing is that, that God chose individuals. And the third thing is that everyone that God chose will be saved. So we start with those understandings, those foundational truths, before we get to chapter 2 and see how that works itself out. So in, Dennis, in Ephesians chapter 2, we begin in verse 1 with the condition of everyone who is born in Adam. And you, speaking to those Christians in Ephesus that he is writing to, you have become believers in Christ, you have been born of God, but you were dead in your trespass sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. What does that mean? In Romans 5, when, when, when Paul is writing about the condition of our condemnation and our, our sin, he makes two statements there. First of all, in, in, in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, all sinned. How is that? Adam is the representative of the human race. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He is the second representative of those who God chose. But you have to be identified with either the first Adam or the second Adam. By natural birth, by physical birth, you become identified with Adam and with Adam's seed. If you're of Adam's seed, you have a nature like Adam. You have, you have sinned like Adam because he was representing you. And now you have a nature that you sin out of. Then he says in verse, 12, in verse 18, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. So by Adam's sin, which we were included in because we sinned when he sinned, he's representing us. And so the whole human race is part of that sin. Whether you like it or not, you sinned when Adam sinned. And whether you like it or not, you're condemned because of Adam's sin. Because it was your sin too. And we're all under condemnation. So we are children of wrath, children of condemnation, children of God's condemnation and God's wrath. So when you're born in the human race, that's who you are. You are a natural man. You are in Adam. 1 Corinthians 2, it talks about the natural man. Verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man cannot accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It's spiritual. Something has to happen before the natural man can accept the gospel. So keep that in mind. In your flesh, you cannot understand anything that is spiritual. In Romans 8, Paul goes into great detail about the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. He says in verse 5 of chapter 8 of Romans, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So that means that you can't have a spiritual faith and be in the flesh. Because here in the flesh, you can't please God. And you can't please God unless you have faith. But it's not that kind of faith. Peter makes it clear in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant, apostle of Jesus Christ, verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter says, I'm writing to those who have received, have been given a faith like mine. That means there's a different kind of faith that's not like mine. It's a faith of the flesh. So you can have fleshly faith, but that's not going to save you. You've got to have spiritual faith. Let's look at the difference. Look in, in um, Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had been comparing the fact that the, the Pharisees did not have a righteousness that would be sufficient. You had to have a righteousness greater than them. And he comes down to, and, and to the verse 13. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. He talks about two gates and two ways, or two highways, and two destinations. There's a broad gate and a narrow gate. There's a broad way and a narrow way. And there's a way of destruction that ends in a lake of fire. And there's a way of life that ends with God forever. He's not saying that you are born in this world and you are, have an age of accountability and you get to this point where you have a fork in the road and you choose one or the other. That's not what it is. Interest of the broad gate is by spiritual identification with Adam. You're born in that gate. You enter the broad gate by natural birth. You are a human being. You're in Adam. You're guilty before God. You're dead in your sins. On that broad road, of all those who have entered the human race, are very religious people and very atheistic people, very moral people and very wicked people. And all between, you have liars, murderers, adulterers. You have saints in the eyes of people. They're all on this broad road because they're all in Adam, and they're all in a natural state. And in that natural state, you have religious people that believe in God. But it is not spiritual faith, it is natural faith. Look in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? 
On that broad road are people that are religious, that believe in the name of Jesus Christ and are doing things in his name or the name of God and thinking they are doing what's right. And they have a natural faith in something that is not true. Now, Jesus doesn't say your faith is not sufficient. He doesn't say you don't have enough faith. What does he say? He said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. From before the foundation of the world, God didn't choose you. I never knew you. I never had a relationship that God purposed before the foundation of the world. And therefore, everything you're doing is out of the flesh because you have not been changed. You have not entered the narrow gate. And therefore, you're here at the judgment because you are in the flesh. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 10 when he's talking about the salvation for the Jews. Here you have the situation in chapters 9 through 11 where Paul is is explaining why the Jews were rejected by God. And Paul's desire for them is their salvation. Look in verse 1, chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for you, them is their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the rights of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here you had Jews that are zealous for the things of God. They had the right scripture. They were given the Old Testament. They were given the law of Moses. They had the covenant of Moses. They knew what God demanded. And they were trying to be righteous by living out the reality of the law of God. They were religious. They believed in God. They believed in their method of of righteousness according to the word that God had given them. But Paul says they're lost. They're not saved. They're not righteous. They have to be born again. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, the epitome of the example of a Jew that believed in God. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus a Pharisee. He's not like the other Pharisees. Most of the Pharisees were hypocrites and God condemned them for their hypocrisy. They, they did what they did to try to get ahead. They did what they did for money or for, for fame or for glory. Nicodemus was not that kind of Jew. He believed. First one, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs unless, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is incredulous. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So Nicodemus understands what he's saying. Where you're at is not good enough. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, how can I do any better? I'm a Jew. I'm God's chosen people. I am a keeper of the law. I'm a teacher of the law. I've done all these things. And Jesus said, you must be born again. And then he says, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born of the spirit. So when you get back to Ephesians chapter 2, when he, when he goes to that passage after he talks about the indictment on the human condition that all men are in the natural state and all are children of wrath or children of Adam, he says, but God being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of his great love which with, he, which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
while you were dead in your transgressions, while you were in a natural state that could not please God in any way, while you had no ability to believe the things of God, God made you alive. That means the new birth comes to you while you are dead, incapable of responding to God. So you become what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says there quickly, he says, For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promise in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is the world by lust. By becoming partakers of the divine nature. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creature. That word there, creature, means it's the same word that's used when God created the world. He made something brand new. He didn't revamp your nature. He made you a new nature. He created within you a new heart. That's what he says in Galatians 6.15 when he's talking about circumcision versus uncircumcision. And he says circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. In other words, the religion of the Jews or the religion of the Gentiles, whether it's Christianity or whatever religion it is, it's nothing. What is important is the new creation. So when Jesus says you must be born again to, to Nicodemus, he said the spiritual birth is like the wind. You don't know where it started, where it came from. You don't even, how, how do you even know it's there? By what it produces. You must be born again. You must be made alive. Okay, we're going to run out of time. Let me turn to 1 John. This is very important to understand how we get from sovereign grace to man's will to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1. Now, the book of 1 John is an amazing book. Um, John is writing things that you must know, that you may know that you have eternal life. And he basically has tests that he gives you to whether you have been born of God or not. The first one is if you've been born of God, you practice righteousness. The question is, which came first? Which came first? Did you do something to be born of God? Or did you do something because you were born of God? Think about it. If you did something in your flesh, it was self-righteousness. It can't be the righteousness of God. It had to be produced by the Spirit, so you had to be born again. So you, it says, if you love God, if you're born of God, you love God. Which came first? Did you love God because in your flesh you love God? Well, the Bible says, no, you can't love God in your flesh. You're hostile to God. So you had to be born of God to love God. You had to be born of God to, to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, look in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 4. First John, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Everyone, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? He's not saying that you evaluate the deeds of your life, and if you've got 55% righteous deeds and 45% unrighteous deeds, then you're okay. That's not what he's saying. 
He said the one born of God cannot sin. This word, this word practice, all through here, in the King James is translated, somebody got the King James, it's translated commit or do. Either do righteousness or commit sin. In this in the NASB, it's, it's practice righteousness or practice sin. But in the King James, it's, it's do righteousness or commit sin. And he says in the King James that no one who commits sin, if one is born of God, he cannot commit sin. The word in the Greek is polio. It's not polio like a polio shot. It's not P-O-L-I-O. It's P-O-L-E-O. It's a Greek word. And it means to be endowed with a certain quality. It means to be endowed with a certain quality. So when he's talking about this committing sin or practicing sin and all that, he's not talking about the acts that are being committed or the acts that are not being committed. He's talking about where they come from. The nature that produces these things. Look in verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed. Whose seed? Whose seed? Jesus Christ. You were in Adam. You were a natural man. You've been born of God. You're a spiritual man. And in your spiritual man, you are baptized into Christ's death. And you're baptized into Christ, identified in Christ's uh, resurrection. And so you are in Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ in your, as you're standing. If you have the seed of Christ in you, that means in the new birth, God gives you the nature from God. That nature from God is perfect and holy. You're a new man. It is perfect and holy. If you die right now and you have that new nature, you go straight to heaven without having to have any cleanup because that nature is perfect and righteous and can go straight to be with God without any change. You are born again with a nature of God and that nature of God cannot sin. How do we sin? We still have the tendencies and the trappings of the flesh. We're not glorified yet. We still have this body of flesh. And even though the new man, the, the man, the, the real man, we are, we are created as a living soul. And the living soul is either alive to God or dead to God. The living soul is either righteous or unrighteous. In the new birth, we are made righteous in our soul. And that nature that flows in our heart produces righteousness and by what is produced out of the heart, it's identified that you're either a child of God or a child of Satan. What flows out of the heart identifies that you're either a child of God or a child of Satan. It's not the amount of the acts. You can, you can have God's nature in you and still sin. But it didn't come from the God's nature. It came from your flesh. That's what Paul says in chapter 7 of Romans when he says, I'm perplexed. I want to do the things I want to do this right and yet I find that I'm doing the things wrong. And he said, it's not me that's doing it, but it's sin in my flesh that's doing this. My being, my nature is righteous and holy. Understand that. So go to chapter 5 in 1 John. So, chapter 5. 
Verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father and loves the child, loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God that when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? A couple of weeks ago when Chris made that statement that you cannot be saved if you don't believe that Jesus is God. Why is that? Because if God's nature is in you and you've been born of God, God's nature is not going to reject the Son of God. God's nature is going to agree with God. And so if you have God's nature, you will agree that Jesus is the Son of God. You will agree with the gospel message that he died on the cross for your sin and he was resurrected. You will believe those things because you've been born of God. If you haven't been born of God, you can declare that Jesus is not God. I'm religious, and I believe free will. I don't believe that Jesus is God. That didn't come from a heart that's been changed by God. That comes from a heart of flesh. All right, let's wrap up. Let's go back to Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You're chosen before the foundation of the world. God entered into a relationship with you before the foundation of the world. The sin of Adam could not thwart that because God had already prepared the lamb to die for you. And God had given you to the son, and the son came and died for you. And all that God has given the son will come to him, and they will come to him through faith. It is not faith out of a fleshly heart. It's not faith out of a natural man. It is faith out of a heart that has been made whole by God. And in that new man, you cannot help but believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when the gospel is preached and the Spirit of God opens up your heart and gives you a new nature, that nature responds to God because it cannot help but respond to God. That's why God can choose and say everyone he chose is going to be saved, and yet man has a responsibility to willfully choose to follow Christ because in that new nature, he cannot help but choose to follow Christ because it's the nature of God to do so. So faith and repentance, true faith and true repentance are a response of a heart that has been made in the image of Christ. And it will always respond. In our flesh, we won't do everything perfectly. But in our heart, we love God and we have faith in Jesus Christ. So when he says that, he says it is a gift of God. It's not a result of works that anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. He's not talking about bragging. He's just saying, no man can take credit for his salvation. I heard a preacher one time say, at least I had enough sense to believe. Where did you get enough sense to believe? You're a natural man. You hate the things of God. The only reason you had enough sense to believe is because God changed your heart or you didn't, or you didn't have enough sense. If you take any credit at all, then you misunderstand. Like he said in, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, at the end of that whole passage, 1 Corinthians 1, talking about the power of God and the wisdom of God and all that. And then he comes down to verse 30 and he says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's his doing. It's not my doing. It's his doing. That's why you can reconcile sovereign grace and man's will. 
God enters into you, gives you a nature that is like God, and out of that nature, you will always will to follow Christ. And you will. You must believe, and you must repent. But you can't without being, having a new heart. That's why First Peter, when he finishes that passage about being chosen by the foreknowledge of God, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. It is the work of God in you. John 6, 30, uh, 6, 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. One quick word about the dangers. The danger of people that hold on to man's free will is the danger of creating a God in their own image. Subjugating God's sovereignty to man's sovereignty. The danger that we have sometimes in those who believe in sovereign grace and believe in, in the power of God to salvation choose the methodology of evangelism that makes it seem like that we have the power to get people saved. So be careful. The Great Commission is in two phases. The first one is in Luke chapter 24. When Jesus is sitting around the fire eating fish in his resurrected body and he is fixing to send them out to be witnesses, he says... In verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you and that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning with Jerusalem. You are my witnesses, he said. The first aspect of the Great Commission and our evangelistic work is to go and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for your sins and call people to faith and repentance. And that message of the gospel identifies those whom God is birthing and bringing to faith. The second part of the commission is Matthew 28. Matthew 28 does not say go and make Christians. It doesn't say go and make believers. It says, go and witness, and those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who believe that he is the Son of God, and those who believe that he died for their sins, and they repent in faith, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end. We're to be witnesses by proclaiming the gospel message. And then those who the Spirit of God endows with the quality of the nature of Christ will respond in repentance and faith. And those who respond in repentance and faith, we baptize and teach them and train them how to walk with God. If we do it the other way, we're in danger of asking people in their natural state to obey the things of God and we make religious people not save people. The Jews were religious, but not saved. There's many in the church today that are religious, but not saved. For by grace are you saved. It is the power of God to bring about the redemption of man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had together. Lord, I just thank you for the preciousness of your word. I thank you, Lord, that there is nothing that I can boast in that my salvation, my life, my eternity is all in your hands. You purposed from the beginning. You, you brought us to the, the reality of the Spirit of God making us alive to you. 
We're no longer in Adam, but we're in Christ. And Lord, we, our, our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. We praise you and we thank you. We give glory to God for our forgiveness of sin and for our, our relationship with you. And we look forward to the day that you will make us conform to his image in a glorified state. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.